Welcome, and thanks for joining us in another installment of CAFE, the Stanford Center for the Study of the Novel podcast. In this episode, our host Margaret Cohen is joined by guests Andrea Goulet, Hector Hoyos, and Michelle Robinson for a discussion of crime narrative. Andrea Goulet is professor of French and Francophone studies at the University of Pennsylvania and co-chair of the 19th Century French Studies Association. Her books include Optiques, The Science of the Eye and the Birth of Modern French Fiction, Legacies of the Rue Morgue, Space and Science in French Crime Fiction, and a co-edited volume on the sci-fi television show Orphan Black. Her current project, titled Shady Quakers and Humbug Inventors, is on anti-American types in 19th century France. Hector Hoyos is an associate professor of Iberian and Latin American cultures, and by courtesy of comparative literature at Stanford University. He is the author of Beyond Bologna, the global Latin American novel, a study of globalization critique in the post-1989 novel, as well as Things with a History, Transcultural Materialism and the Literatures of Extraction in Contemporary Latin America. A Genealogy of Materialist Thinking in the Region's Fiction. Michelle Robinson is an Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her book, Dreams for Dead Bodies, examines how stories and novels by Edgar Allan Poe, Mark Twain, Pauline Hopkins, and Rudolf Fischer drew on the puzzle elements of detective fiction to explore shifting configurations of race and labor relations in the 19th and early 20th centuries. We're thrilled to be sharing this conversation with you, so thank you again for listening in as we scholars have a friendly chat among ourselves. Thank you all so much for joining us at the center. I guess, um... I'll start with one of the most sensationalist aspects of crime fiction, which is blood. Do you think crime fiction needs blood? Margaret, um, the idea of bloodless crime fiction seems to be one that's um, put forward by the most purified models of like the Agatha Christie, uh, puzzle deduction format and um, the SS Van Dyne 20 rules for writing detective fiction that leaves out anything gory or gothic and both supernatural or too bodily. And so it becomes this puzzle of intellection, right? But I think that my co-panelists would agree with me that that model never really holds in practice. There's always murder and murder is by, well, not always, but in most crimes, there is bodily harm and, and violence and in the most extreme forms, murder, which whether by poison or by knife, involves gore. Your question makes me wonder about why is blood so satisfying to read about <laughs> or to see? It is, it is such a delight, even when it's scary, I'm thinking of that scene in 100 Years of Solitude. I think it's the last of the 17 Aurelianos who is 
gets killed or, or one of the, the, the children, I don't remember at the moment, but there's a long trickle of blood um, that is described for, for many a page and, and you never know who shot the individual in question, but the trickle of blood is very satisfying even when it is scary. I obviously agree with Andrea. I'm thinking back from uh, Murders in the Room Morgue and the decapitation there all the way to say the, the unbelievable crimes that Dexter commits in that show um, where one of the first crimes I think is a killer, an ice truck killer who actually drains all of the blood out of his victim's body. So you get big barrels of the stuff there. I think there's plenty of attention uh, to blood in, in most detective fictions. What, what kinds of, um, I mean, I, I take your points that, um, that the puzzle, I, I guess, well, actually I'm a little bit confused now. Um, detective fiction, crime fiction, is there a difference? I think detective fiction is a narrower form, narrow, more narrowly defined. And one way in which it can be distinguished is through that intellection model, the, the emphasis on the deductive resolution of a mystery. And the mystery can, for hundreds of pages, um, be fully rationally described. But crime fiction, I think, would incorporate the bloody corporeal aspects more. Uh, on the other hand, on the kind of edge of that generic de definition, I think people have a sense of crime fiction, even in the most capacious definition, as different from horror. And so the, the frisson, the, the disgust and fear evoked by horror films or novels or stories seems to be different from the even the most bloody of crime narratives. You also have a triangle between detective, crime, and victim. And some uh, stories would place more of an emphasis on, on one of the points in the triangle than others. And there's another definition that Charles Shepka uses where he differentiates even between detective fiction, which simply has a character of the detective using the detective as its dominant to fiction of detection where the puzzle element is paramount. And maybe those are often the least bloody because we're so wrapped up in, in a lot of minute um, clues, but there's that as well as the way of demarcating the various um, types of detective fiction that we deal with or crime fiction that we encounter. Hector, can I come back to, to what you said about the satisfaction of the blood and you know just being able to get into the gore? I, I, I was struck in your, in your thinking about it, that you evoked a very specific visual, like figure of the blood and the way there was this trickle of it. And so I wondered if I could ask all three of you to talk a little bit more about um, the types of ways in which blood is, is offered to the reader and maybe the voyeurism of that in detective fiction. Well, certainly there's an element of aestheticization, right? Um, in the representation of blood and, and there's always the, the conceit because when you actually see blood, it's not pleasant. Um, when you read about it, uh, when it is enveloped in art, then it, it can be. Uh, but without the kind of filtering or elaboration, you, you wouldn't be in the terrain of 
you know, crime fiction or real crime fiction, but in real, real crime fiction, and, and you don't want to go there. <laughs> and you, you talked about satisfaction. I think there's a kind of double movement in the most typical of crime or detective stories, which is the initial seduction and the titillation of entering into this punctured state of things, punctured by violence, often by grotesque bodily violence. And then there's a movement toward a different kind of satisfaction, which is that of the resolution of the unknown. And that I think has led a lot of people to think of the genre as fundamentally conservative in that a satisfactory resolution gives us an answer to the mystery and a kind of closure that is then gonna be reopened in the next installment because it is a very serial genre. Let me footnote that by reminding us of, of Thomas de Quincey's uh, of Murder as One of the Fine Arts, which is such, such a great read. And um, I guess it evidences how in, in every reader there is the, the sadistic and the masochistic. And, and, and that's part of the titillation also that Andrea was talking about, right? We, we indulge in one of these you know, sides of, 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 of our personalities, uh, the sway of the pendulum in, in everyone. <laughs> Just to add on to what Hector said, I'm interested in the way that blood can sometimes be a mark of elegance, is in the really beautiful image you described. So if we think of the murderer in some cases as a kind of artist, the way that the blood uh, is, is on display becomes really imaginatively exciting. Um, but there is the other hand, the kind of brutality or the index of cruelty that the proliferation of blood and human remains can signal. So I'm really interested by the um, aesthetic appreciation you're giving of blood. And it, it speaks to something you brought up in the conversation, Hector, about your struggle to have people read Marquez not as a social, just as a social writer, but as, as a brilliant poetic and, and literary writer. Um, and so I'm wondering if I could kind of pivot from that to a question, which I think you all addressed in your panels in different ways. Um, the Gilets Jaunes, the issue of class, um, uh, America's foundation upon um, enslavement and how um, American fiction works through that. Relations that you described, Hector, about um, honor killing and um, uh, patriarchy and, and ask about how the political and the aesthetic work together in, in, in the specific literature you discussed or um, maybe more generally, you know, in crime fiction. I'm, I'm happy to say uh, one thing about this, and I, I really appreciate, Margaret, how you um, save the political rather than politics. Um, I, I think that is, that is spot on. And uh, one of uh, the characteristics of uh, crime fiction, as far as I can tell, is to reveal certain social ontologies. Uh, they, they make visible certain social types. So you know, the detective is cool, cere cerebral, uh, traditionally upper class, or has a certain, you know, uh, certain manners and so on. When that model starts to uh, break down and, and other social ontologies become visible in crime fiction, um, we intervene in the realm of, of the political, of, of what is possible to imagine as, as a subject. I think that's, that's one great uh, feature of, of crime fiction. And, and when Hector says that it provides a way to imagine um, political, I think uh, 
you're also talking about the emancipatory potential for crime fictions, right? Uh, as a way to imagine alternate models, um, but also as a way to critique current ways that the state or that uh, institutions or that ideologies create inequalities or the, the circumstances that lead to violent rupture. In the work that I was discussing by Mark Twain, one of the things that we see when detectives emerge, and I only was able to mention this briefly because there are many detectives, is they're following more of the model of the Pinkerton. Um, and they really are interested in the work and in the money and don't have this kind of connection or loyalty uh, towards any kind of conservative project except for capitalism, which is plenty conservative. <laughs> so. I think that Twain is very excited about imagining politics, but the detective is not necessarily a figure that will take him down, down these avenues. I was gonna ask you, Michelle, in, in your paper, whether opium came in. Because uh, when I, you know, in my work on the sea in the 19th century in the US, um, the opium trade with China is such a prominent feature of um, kind of the dream states and the, um, the ways in which the Orient is envisaged. It's not in that particular fiction. I do think it comes up in other places, maybe in uh, his double barrel detective story, the kind of parody where there is a Sherlock Holmes figure who is uh, really inept and actually has a body explode in front of him um, and doesn't understand why that happened. Um, so yeah, so he does see that kind of whole um, Sherlock Holmes ritual of opium um, in one of his works. Yeah, that the Sherlock Holmes addictions, I think, are connected to that tension between the, the bodily and the incorporeal, rationalized side of things. Um, and if I can address the aesthetics of crime fiction, too, in relation to one of the authors in the French tradition, Leo Mallet, who wrote in the mid 20th century, had been a surrealist poet before using the American noir as a model to shift into crime fiction. And some of his contemporaries, especially the surrealists, found this to be a complete sellout. But uh, people like Jonathan Eburn and um, others like me have, have read a continuity between the aesthetic surrealism of Malay's poetry and the scenes and language of his crime novels. So I don't think they're oppositional. And following up on the opium question, um, one thing that came up in Andrea's presentation was the role of the non-human, the role of cars. And I would love to see more scholarship about the non-human in crime fiction. Um, you have these chain smoking uh, detectives. It seems like, like thinking and, and smoking are, are of a piece. Um, so, so there seems to be a, a lot to explore there. And then something harkening back to an earlier moment in, in the conversation though, it's interesting to think about the, the political context of, of crime fiction and how that impacts you know, fiction itself. Um, a great Cuban author that I was going to present on and then I, I shifted and ended up working on Garcia Marquez is Leonardo Padura. And you know, to write uh, detective fiction under communism, like in the island of Cuba, means you have to change every rule, right? Because obviously a detective wouldn't make sense. Privacy doesn't work in the same way. And so um, 
you, you learn so much about um, the you know the Cuban regime, its ideology, and also the, about daily life by reading someone like like Pauda that I would you know encourage people to to follow up on. And then um, when he writes about the assassination of Trotsky in in Mexico City, um, he is able to do all sor sorts of like you know lateral moves on the Cuban government while while living to this day in in Havana, where where I hope this podcast is never listened to. Do you think that, uh, I was going to ask, because I'm thinking of um, serial um, TV shows today, I guess, that are so powerful that we've all been watching during the pandemic. So many of them are crime-based. I guess I'm interested in the continuity of these TV shows with the earlier crime fiction that you work on and um, how crime portrayal shifts across media. I think there's been a lot of interesting work done on serial TV um, as inheritor of the 19th century feuilleton serial novel form in newspapers. Do you agree? Yes. I, I, I wrote an article once about The Wire as a 20th century version of Eugène Sue's urban mystery, Mysteries of Paris, which is a transnational genre. It includes uh, the Mysteries of Philadelphia by George Lippard, which um, resonated, resonates for me with um, the Mark Twain uh, story that Michelle was talking about. You wanna say more? Does anybody wanna say more about this features? I mean, I don't know who's read all 12 or nine, 10 volumes of the Mysteries of Paris. I guess I myself have. I so have. <laughs> we, could, we could get into um, the, um, all the intricacies of what's going on there, but, um, but it, might be, it might be helpful just, just to say a little bit more about um, serials and um, their relationship to crime. So, so I wonder, you know, what order is being restored in the different serials? That that would be an interesting question to to ask. And um, also on, on the on the French vein, I recently watched uh, Lupin, which is a, a remake on, on you know the, the great Fantomas, um, and that's interesting, right? Because every episode is like a a restoration of a sense of of racial equity in a multicultural, multi ethnic French society. So. It, the, the, the bad thing, though, is that if you are aware of this, then it becomes a little repetitive and dull after a little while. Uh, but at least the opening, you know, um, remake of the whole um, uh, painting stolen at the Louvre scene is amazing. It's just that's really quite something. It's an event. It absolutely does. And the Maurice Leblanc, um, Arsène Lupin stories were very much about the restoration of money and artifacts and national treasures. So when the new TV series, Lupin, uh, plays on the theft of the, the you know, Louvre piece, uh, it's nodding, of course, directly back to the Maurice Leblanc, Arsène Lupin. Um, and that Maurice Leblanc nods back to an ever receding earlier model. For example, one of the adventures of Arsène Lupin is called Arsène Lupin contre Herlock Sholmes. <laughs> so playing with the, you know, British predecessor. I love that. I, I mean, it's so resonant about heist, um, heist 
drama as restorative. Um, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm sort of scrolling through all the heist movies and stories I can think of. And at the end, always the, like the order seems to have to step in. There, there are very few where you don't get, you know, like um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance King kind of jumping off and then freezing. There's always some, but up until that last minute, there's a sense of um, restoration that that occurs. Um, Delvin Louise, I don't know. I mean, they're just there. There's so many that come to mind. It's really interesting. And there's a Robin Hood fantasy too. I think in a lot of them that comes back to the uh, was it Brecht quote that Hector was citing about founding a bank being as much yeah. of a crime as robbing one. <laughs> So what do you think the first heist um, drama is? I think that maybe the most monumental one, and there's got to be plenty before that, would be The Moonstone. And that is certainly about the restoration of a treasure. Yeah, oh yeah, right. I mean, I guess this also then gets into, in a way, which I mean, the subject of your paper, Michelle, which was like the meeting of crime fiction and inheritance literature, which is, I mean, I think of inher inheritance plot or Dickens is so much like so central to 19th century literature um, and to what we would think of as realist literature. But um, in the Twain um, piece, uh, is, is it a novel? It's unfinished, is it? It's, it's about 200 Okay, so we're gonna call it off. <laughs> I'm interested in, and maybe why, you know, of course Twain wrote himself, painted himself into a corner, I think. Uh, but why that would not be something he would have revised for publication, um, since there's so many different kind of scattered unfinished pieces that went on to be finished. Can you say a little bit more about that, you know, for people who weren't at the event? So I was um, speaking about an unfinished novel called Which Was It, which is a dream experiment. So Twain had a couple of these where he uh, imagined the experience of someone who was highly successful in which was the dream, it's uh, someone who is on his way to becoming president after having succeeded in, in you know, beyond all imagination in the Mexican-American war. And then in a dream sequence, the individual went on to lose all of his money to become um, an outcast in society for some mix up that he's, he's been drawn into. And for Twain, sometimes these leave off in the dream. Um, there's, you know, the horrifying situation that he's interested in exploring um, can't be closed off and you just kind of settle there. And that's something that's very important in which was that the piece I was discussing, because it does go on for so long, this dream is, you know, how he can get out of the dream once he's gone really down this rabbit hole um, and discovered, you know, that this endpoint um, where I guess it's too difficult to wake up once the protagonist finds himself um, in a locked room with a man who is a former slave and being subordinated to that black man. It's just such a horrifying um, endpoint that how you emerge from that, how you can reconcile that and return to waking life as if it never happened uh, is just hard to understand. Yeah, I, I think that that dream motif is really interesting as a counterpoint to the hyper-rationality Right, um, Mauricio Ascazi, I think, has, has written about the um, irrational roots of the form. And the, 
the, the dream comes in the Wilkie Collins, right? The Moonstone, the question of somnambulism and also in Gaston Leroux's Le Mystère de la Chambre Jaune. Uh, these alternate states are in a way, apparently the exact opposite of the lucid Cartesian detective's mind, right? So the, the fact that these dreams are there from the beginning of the genre kind of clouding that transparent rationality, I think is interesting. I mean, I guess I just feel, you know, if, if crime fiction in some ways is the dream of realism or, you know, it, it's sort of able to bring to the fore the very disturbing elements of the society portrayed say in 19th century realism that have to be uh, put to the margins in order to focus on like, I guess the social hierarchies um, that are, I don't know, I'm, I'm now I'm talking to myself into a corner that, that are considered dominant. Um, you know, it seems to me that the surrealists are really in there throughout the whole, you know, you can see why the surrealists love crime fiction, even if they really didn't like the fact that, <laughs> that um, they might be betrayed by Leo Malay, but um, it seems like there, there is a phantasmatic quality to, to crime fiction. And I guess you've been talking about how it sits with a hyper-rationality. Well, well, there too, I'll, I'll, I'll mention Jonathan Eburn's book, The Art of Crime, which is about surrealism and crime narrative. And Eburn brings up Chester Himes, doesn't he? I think there's quite a bit on him there. So there's a kind of nice crossing where Himes' Harlem is so dreamlike in many ways. And it's so, the, the work by Himes are so fixated on like economies within Harlem and the, the kind of subterranean tra transactions that are taking place. And at the same time, it's absurd and it's, and it's completely dreamlike. And, and, and also, you know, look no further than Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> with the supernatural and the detective. I'm thinking of the cask of Amontillado and 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 the iron mask and you know all, all of these other tropes it that point of contact between the supernatural and the super rational was very successful in latin america for instance where you have julio cortazar cortazar uh doing the translations of poe into spanish and so um and in in someone like uh borges as well right his his own you know for for borges fantastic literature and uh, philosophical literature, the literature of ideas were one and the same thing. And so someone like Poe provided like the example, I think, uh, more so than, than others um, in the Pantheon. Uh, Poe, I think, was, was the more eloquent to, to folks in, in different places in Latin America. Maybe I'll just shift a little bit and ask you, um, crime fiction, tragedy, or comedy? And I guess I, guess I got started thinking about tragedy in your paper, Hector. Um, I was thinking of Antigone, actually, and I, and I know we had a question in the chat, which you didn't get to respond to about Hegel and the sublime, but I was thinking about, you know, Antigone and the law of blood versus the law of the state and the way in which that's resolved as tragedy for Hegel as the genre of tragedy. Um, and that um, you were describing in some ways a very different generic take on it, but nonetheless involving some of the is same issues. So. I, I, I'm wondering if there's a kind of lightning of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, Antigone looms really large here. I would uh, direct folks to Moira Fradinger's 
book on, on the Antigones in Latin America. There's something like a thousand versions of Antigone that she considers. But you know, some of the more prominent ones and, and related to uh, the book I was giving the talk on um, include In Evil Hour, one of Garcia Marquez's early novels. And, and he also has an, an epigraph from Antigone elsewhere. So I think that crisis at a very like literal level, like uh, does the state allow to bury remains here or not? has been experienced, you know, unfortunately, by so many thousands of people um, in connection to different uh, oppressive regimes, some military, some, some, not, some no, that Antigone just really resonates. Now, at the same time, the Hegelian reading of Antigone and the idea of restoring an order and of putting, you know, reason and society together, that part doesn't resonate. <laughs> so, so you have the premise of Antigone, but not the resolution. Um, springing in, in all kinds of, uh, of ways. Another book that's interesting in that regard by, by Sara Uribe is Antigona Gonzalez. That's what, one of the many rewritings has to do with uh, femicide along the, the US-Mexico border. And so Antigona Gonzalez is, is, is a really interesting work in, in that way too. And I'm sorry to retreat to like subdisciplinary expertise because your question was a lot broader than that. <laughs> well, I guess I was also thinking about comedy in, in crime. I mean, this it, it has an aesthetic quality to it and does go back to the sensationalism that you that you talked about. But um, I was just interested in, in hearing everyone talk a little about that. Maybe just a tiny thing about comedy. There's comedy that one laughs about and there's comedy that one kind of like laughs and cries at the same time about. So, so sure, I mean, comedy by all means, and, and sometimes the, um, you know, it, when, when people are experiencing like duress and are, are close to crime, you know, they, they are in the vicinity of crime. It's not something abstract that you have to read in a book, but you know, crime is right there. That's sometimes when the, when the you know, most like perverse humor emerges <laughs> and people really relish, you know, and, and laugh, but they laugh with, with a little sadness and, and sometimes with anger and it's all bundled together. It's, it's like a, a powerful, um, uh, like somatic experience. It's in, it's in the body, that kind of laughter, I guess. And there again, Edgar Allan Poe really uh, encapsulates that kind of dark humor and the, the tricky edge between horror and humor. But can I say, Hector, when you apologize for being, being field specific, you shouldn't. Um, in, in my paper, I was calling for keeping uh, national distinctions in play when we think about the entanglements of local and global, right? I wanted to keep that kind of uh, national tradition as one of the points of reference. And in part, it was out of a recognition of distinct scholarly fields of expertise, like the ones represented by the three of us. So um, just as an anecdote, a university press editor once asked me, why are you writing just about French crime fiction? Isn't this a global genre? Why aren't you writing about Scandinavian and Latin American? And I thought it was a strange question because it presumes that I would be capable of writing about American crime fiction as well as Michelle Ken or Latin American as well as Hector Ken, and I can't. And I think what really came out in their talks is that knowing not only the political context and the historical context of a specific national tradition, but also the literary history really adds something important to readings. Otherwise you just get a, a mega formalist 
presentation of the Toda Roth, uh, you know, shape of detective fiction or something. Uh, there's something I, I, I really liked in the three papers together, which was, uh, Andrea, you, you were saying it, right? The, the national slash international dimension of all the papers. Um, they, they were very grounded, you know, uh, French literary studies and American and Latin American. But in, in Michelle's paper, you have this imaginary orient and, and, the, and the, you know, the, the types and stereotypes that are, are, are indeed more than just, you know, American, if you want to understand that very narrowly. So when I think of someone like, like Wei Chi Dimuk, who I know has been an interlocutor at the center, and that idea that, you know, uh, U.S. literature is crisscrossed by the literatures of the world, it's interesting, but I feel that the three presentations were already there. You know, they 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 are at, at the um, uh, resolution of a dialectic between being like narrowly nationalistic and and being vaguely cosmopolitan and, and open to the world, but without granularity. And and we were trying to to do that. I I know that I enjoyed a lot, really, um, and, and I would have enjoyed a lot more in in person to to see people's eyes when I included the Mishima image. <laughs> Um, after the Falcon re-image, you know, I was I was going for defamiliarization. I was going for this is the Spanish Middle Ages are alive here, but you know what? Also the Japanese Middle Ages, um, and and I wasn't doing that out of impressionism or equating everything in kind of like a postmodern melee, but because I I do think there are like threads that you can follow across these different um, domains. I mean, just to um, to speak to one of the. French elements, Andrea, what you were talking about when you were showing the rond-point. Um, I, I, you know, in France over the past 15 years, I've noticed this like increasing movement to put the giratoire everywhere, you know? So they've gotten rid of the stop sign. They've got, <laughs> you can't go anywhere without the giratoire. And they're always on the, the edges of town in like the exurbs. And, and so that sense of the street as you would have it in 1848 or the Paris Commune, that's really so different from the emotional um, valence of these, you know, blank spaces that are built upon um, probably, you know, landfill with this kind of artificial grass that looks like around them. And in that image you showed from Saint-Malo, it's just a really different space from, um, from the kind of, I would say almost the warmth and the hot space of the street. And, and so I'm wondering like, if, if, and this is specifically for your paper, but I'm, I'm sure, and, and just keeping with Hector's, you know, um, which I, I, and all of you are, are showing like both the very local inserted aspect of the crime narratives and yet their entanglement with problems that stretch beyond the local. So I'm interested in how like the, those exurbs in France give a really different feeling to like a crime, scenes in 2019 than you would see in, in something in the streets of Paris or Marseille. Right, I, I think you're right. It is a different kind of topography. And so I think that if, if you try to trace as I did a sort of street crime genre um, back to the 19th century, there's continuity and there's change. The continuity that I was trying to bring out is that the street whether it's a 19th century cobblestone or a Osmanian boulevard or a 20th or 21st century Pont-Point continually exists as a site of conflict between domestic and national, private and political, et cetera. But 
there's discontinuity as well, which I think you're hinting at because the terrain changes. And so when, as I mentioned, Kristen Ross sees continuity between the Paris Commune uprisings and the Gilets Jaunes uh, rond-point insurrections and blockages, that's a political continuity, but there's also a different shape to it. And so the shape of the rond-point that, as you said, is often peripheral, not central, um, connects more to what I was saying about revolution and circulation and the question of revolution as a, a, a cycle with no exit or revolution as rupture and change. I would be super intrigued, Andrea, to, to hear you say something about Serotonin and Michel Ulbeck's novel. Not that, you know. Oh, all right, all right. Well, it's not his best. It's not his best. I, I, I am a fan of the, of the early work, and I know he's problematic in many, many ways, but I am. Um, but the thing in Serotonin is there is a standoff at a highway uh, blockage between, he doesn't call them gilets jaunes because they, they hadn't been constituted at the time that he's writing, but he imagines these like rabble based on José Bové types against the state. And, and, and you have like, like this, um, you know, line of, of fight on the highway. It's a, it's a highway blockage. So, I, I, but yeah, maybe for, for, for some uh, a future conversation, it's also, I really appreciated the connection with the situationists because um, because what would um, a, um, a psychic map of, of Paris look like these days with you know everyone sheltering in place or in quarantine and after Bataclan and, and whatnot I mean geesh you're, you're really you know redoing the whole thing <laughs> so that kind of takes us back to I'm not sure it was Hannah or another person in the larger talk who, who spoke about the protesters in the street being vulnerable um, to murder uh, and that, that kind of shape of the street now. I'm so fascinated, Andrea, by this idea that the shape of the street in Paris also informs the structure of crime fiction there and vice versa. And going back to, to I guess it's murders, right? Where they're the cobblestones that have been thrown or there for the throwing um, and the idea of revolution behind that too. How susceptible the streets are to revolution seems so important. Right, and, and part of it is the street toponymics, the namings of the streets. Because in the French history, uh, as you probably know, each successive political regime changed street names, right? So after the revolution, they got rid of names that evoked saints or kings and put in sort of like la rue du citoyen, the citizen or something, right? And then each subsequent regime changed street names again. And what I found in some of the crime stories was that those street names became red herrings as plot points so that the detective was trying to solve a recent murder or mystery but had to understand the history and the national history in order to realize that, oh wait, this didn't happen on this street. It had a different name at the time, right? So there's the, there's the kind of archeological layers that are at work that, um, that anchor even the most contemporary crime fictions in a sedimented history 
that you can get at through those streets and the street names. There's also that uh, meeting point between urban fiction and crime fiction to think about. And, and, and crime fiction in rural context, I mean, that was the, the big success of Fargo back in the late 90s, I believe, and it has been remade a number of times that it, could there even be crime, right? Could it, could it be imaginable in those vast white expanses? There is one very rare, I don't know if maybe someone is listening to the podcast and, and wants like a rare <laughs> uh, reading tip. Um, there's a novella called um, To Lose is a Matter of Method, Perder es Cuestión de, de Método by Santiago Gamboa. I don't know if it has been translated. That happens to be both one of the best urban novels of the city of Bogota um, and also a really fun uh, like, like page turner crime story about this character who appears to be impaled uh, next to a lake in the outskirts of the city. And so how did this come to happen? And in that book, at the end, so huge spoiler, <laughs> uh, it turns out that some like <laughs> construction um, mogul, you know, someone who wanted to develop like real estate around the lake area had staged the whole impaling and this person had gone to school at Stanford. <laughs> it's a novel from 1996. What, what can I say? <laughs> well, always the bad guys. It's pretty hard to, um, to follow up on that one, Hector. I think you've given us our, uh, our note to, to wrap up. So thank you all for, for joining us for this this really fascinating conversation. I feel like just as the pandemic is ending and I'm now going to be able to get out and travel and don't have to sit in front of the TV every night and watch, you know, crime, crime series. Maybe I have a huge number of books I could pick up and start reading as I, as I move about. So it's also been personally very enriching. Thanks to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us in this episode of the Center for the Study of the Novels podcast, CAFE. We would also like to thank Andrea Golay, Hector Hoyos, and Michelle Robinson for their generosity in agreeing to this conversation. Thanks to our team at the Center for the Study of the Novel, to Antron Nguyen and Maritza Colon for their operational support, to our graduate coordinators, Victoria Zurita, Cynthia Giancotti, and Casey Patterson, to Eric Fredner for editing, consultation, and sound engineering, and to our host and director, Margaret Cohen. The Center for the Study of the Novel is a subsidiary of the English Department at Stanford University.